shouts. Mr. Kalen, appreciate that much. First Thessalonians chapter number four. First Thessalonians chapter number four. Join me there. As we continue in our series, God's Prophetical Times. First Thessalonians chapter number four. We do have the uh, box of goodies children up here. And so if you'll take notes, I'll be ready to answer a question either way and uh, come up after the service. And uh, we'd like to meet you up here as we continue in our series in God's Prophetical Times. A little bit of a different message this evening. Obviously, the topic at hand will take us several weeks, and uh, at least a handful of weeks or a few weeks, however you want to put it, as we get through it, and a couple at least. And uh, yet with it, I, I, I'll tell you, when we come, to, <laughs> for me, when we come to this part of our study of God's Prophetical Times, I it's the most exciting part of it. I've been looking forward to this now for month plus and even longer really as we thought about what the Lord would have us to preach in accordance to this prophetical time series. Um, this, is a, this is unique and a special subject matter for us tonight. It's a time that you and I every believer, Christ church is in the spotlight <laughs> that takes the forefront. The church does. Um, there are only two actors in this season, this time, and that's Jesus Christ and his bride and uh, the church. That's you and I. And so that's why it makes it exciting. So tonight we delve into what we would call the time when Christ returns to take his bride home with him. The rapture. The rapture. And uh, we say much about it or we talk much about it. And so it's good for us to kind of revisit, to say, okay, why do we believe what we believe um, and why is that important? Now, I understand that across our entire membership here and attendance or attendees, may we have a wide variety of knowledge on the subject matter and, and so forth. So we're going to try to hit it as best we can from every direction and uh, just to kind of give some things so um, uh, we'll all pick up on the different mounts of the information we give even this evening. And yet I hope it'll help us to have a great biblical foundation for why we believe what we believe. And uh, from the scriptures, and so I think that's crucial, always one of my heartbeats is whenever we look at something like this for you and I to make sure that it is biblically founded and grounded, okay? First Thessalonians chapter 4, look at verse 13, and we'll read down through verse number 18. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. And uh, he's addressing some things that have come up in the church of Thessalonica, some, some, cur- some concerns, some uh, wrong teaching, we might put it that way. For he believed that Jesus Christ died and or that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. And I am so very thankful for that next verse, verse 18. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. And so they are of great comfort for you and I. So we want to jump into the topic tonight. We want to describe why we believe what we believe according to the Scriptures. Letter A, uh, under this point, would be simply this. We believe in a rapture. Why is that important? Well, there's a whole lot of different beliefs out there, and a whole lot of things that uh, can be misconstrued and so forth. And we believe in a rapture, uh, a rapture of the saints. We'll talk about that in extent this evening. But one of the first things that those who don't believe in a rapture will argue is this. Well, wait a second. The word rapture 
mirror isn't actually found in the, the English Bible. We don't have it there. It's not yeah, that word. You can't look through the New Testament. You can't do a, a search on eSword or Google or anything like that and find the word rapture within the English Bible. Okay? Therefore, they conclude that the rapture is not a biblical belief. It's not, it, it's not true. It's not real. The rapture isn't going to happen. Now, can I just tell you tonight that such a belief is rather absurd. Uh, it's nothing but a straw man that is erected as a fallible argument against the teaching of the rapture. Now, it's interesting. As we think of the Scriptures, we could argue from like points. Uh, there, uh, most of you would know that in the book of Esther, the name of God is not found. Now, if we're going to argue the same line or the same thinking, the same logic, here's what we'd have to say. We'd have to say that God is not involved in the story of Esther because the name of God is not mentioned in the book of Esther. You know what I say to that? Absurd. If you've ever read the book of Esther, you know that God is through every part of that story. He is working, organizing, doing all kinds of things. The same is true of the idea of the rapture. If the word is not found, as it is not in the New Testament, English translations of God's word, the reality is that doesn't mean that it's non-existent, that it's not going to happen. Can I just tell you right now, the word may not be there, but the concept, the belief of the rapture is all over the New Testament. We'll see that in our study in the days ahead and the services as we grasp at it and look at it. So that then begs the question. We throw around this word rapture. Where in the world does this word rapture come from? Look at verse 17 with me, if you will. Verse number 17. Then we which are alive and remain shall be, notice this descriptive word, caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we be ever with the Lord. You see the statement here in verse 17, the great description is that word caught up. It's a translation of the Greek word harpazo, harpazo. Um, it is, that Greek word is used some 14 times in the New Testament. We will look at a handful of them tonight, and what we will see is that it is a very descriptive and a very beautiful word in its meaning and its understanding of what the rapture really is. What God has in store for you and I as believers is the bride of Christ, the church of Christ. The English term rapture that you and I gain, let me back up here, as I said 14 times, but the English term rapture, it comes from the Latin, a Latin word that is associated with or connected to the Greek word here. Let me give you a brief etymology of the word, where it comes from, the background of the word rapture, okay? This is just a very brief summation of the etymology of the word. Rapture is derived from the Middle French rapture, okay, via the medieval Latin raptura, means seizure or kidnapping, which derives from the Latin raptus or rapio, a carrying off. Okay? So it's an interesting study, and we could go into greater depth with the etymology of the word, where we derive it from. That gives you a basic understanding. Now, the meaning of the word harpazo is, 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 is agreed upon by most scholars. Certainly not only biblical scholars, but Greek scholars and so forth would agree on the definition. I like to see it broken down into three different parts in the definition. It, it really is found within the Scriptures as such. Again, giving us, much like um, we think of the Gospels, right? When the Gospels 
tell a story of Jesus Christ, we're getting a different perspective of the same story. I love reading the Gospels because each one emphasizes a different thing. Each one gives you a different picture perspective of the same event transpiring if they record the same event. And so the theme is true of this word herpazo. As it's used throughout the New Testament, it gives us a little different meaning or perspective, same idea, but different perspective of what the rapture is going to be like, of what the rapture is. And so I love how the use of this word is presented to us, these three parts of the definition, that picture that it presents. The first definition or part of the definition would be this, to seize or carry off by force. Okay, that word translated as caught up in here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 means to seize, to carry off by force. There's a couple of verses that illustrate this, several verses. We'll just look at two. The first is John chapter 6 and verse 15. Turn with me there. John chapter 6 and verse 15. John chapter 6 and verse number 15. John chapter 6 and verse number 15. We'll look at this passage. As we look through it, here's what I challenge to you is. Look for the word or words, statement, phrase, that would be to the translation in our English from the Greek word harpazo. What do you think it would be? Look at verse number 15, if you will. John chapter 6 and verse number 15. When Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. Do you think you know what it is? Okay? Say it in your own head. Okay, what is it? Well, I mean, it is to take by force. To take by force. And I, I like this, this passage because you know what they're doing? It's positive, isn't it? He says, listen, I, 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 it's not time yet for me to be what? King. They wanted to come and take him by force to make him king right then. He said, eh, we're a couple thousand years early, right? And uh, it's not time to be king. So they were gonna, this is a positive thing to come and take him by force. We're going to put you in as king and so forth. And that's the, the meaning of the word harpazo here, the use of it, the definition. To seize, to carry off by force in a very positive way. Turn over with me to the book of Acts, will you? Acts chapter 23. Again, just trying to give us a sample, a taste of some of the, the different perspectives of the use of the word harpazo and its definition as it is one of the key words to describing the rapture in its event for us. Acts chapter 23, we look at verse number 10. This is the negative aspect of it. The positive was seen there in John 6. Here's a negative uh, perspective of it. Acts chapter 23 and verse 10. And when there arose a great dissension, the chief captain, fearing lest Paul should have been pulled in pieces of them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and to bring him into the castle. Same thing. You probably guessed it. There it is. Taken by force. The idea of taking him, seizing him by force, removing him from that situation. I thought it was interesting. We sing today, my God is able to deliver thee. And you know what the rapture is all about? <laughs> God's deliverance of you and I. And from the upcoming tribulation thing, I just need how the Lord tie that all together. And so it is. Well, again, we'll see that in our studies. And this idea of taking him, seizing him, and even by force. Okay, number two. So to seize, to carry off by force. The second part of the definition is this. To seize on or claim for one's self eagerly. To seize on or to claim for oneself eagerly. I like the a aspect of eagerness behind this. And we'll tie in the idea for oneself here in a moment. But well, I want you to see a couple different passages again. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. Now this gets a little different. And uh, the word that it's translated into the English 
but I think it's a word that we can well identify with. Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, we look at verse number 19. Here's what it says. When anyone heareth the word of the kingdom and and understandeth it not, then cometh the wicked one and catcheth away that which was sown in his heart. This is he which receives seed by the wayside. You think you know what it is? Translated as? It catches away, right? There it is. Catcheth away, right? Uh, to come and to catch it away. The idea of, again, to seize on for sure, to claim it for oneself eagerly. And just uh, the, the, the energy behind coming and just whew, snatching it away. Okay, number two, turn with me over to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. We'll be here for a few verses in John chapter 10. John chapter 10. Look at uh, with me, if you were at will, verse number 12. John chapter 10, verse 12. Again, endeavoring to get a, a full picture of the word harpazo as it is meaning caught up in, from which we see the term rapture gained. John chapter 10, and verse number 12. But he that is an hireling and not the shepherd, whose own the sheep are not, seeth the wolf coming and leaveth the sheep and fleeth. And the wolf, here's the same word again, catcheth them and scattereth the sheep. So the idea of catching, right? The, the idea of seizing um, something or someone. That's the picture of the word. Finally, notice the third aspect of the definition. It means to snatch out or away. This is my favorite. To snatch out or away. To snatch it, okay? And uh, uh, have you ever tried to snatch out a, something out of somebody's hand? Maybe they're holding a penny or something. Hey, grab it. And they keep doing this to you and so forth. And you're trying to snatch it and grab it out of their hand, whatever the case may be. And uh, so forth. Or if you like that game where you go, okay, anyway, something like that. You know, the idea of snatching, right? To grab it, to, to take it out of somebody's hand. Uh, the word is used as such. In fact, it's used here in John chapter 10. Look down at verse 28 and 29. Look at the terminology that is used for you and I. In verse 28, and I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand my father which gave them me is greater than all and no man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand a great verse on assurance of salvation and such okay but you know what word is used there right to pluck out to pluck out to, to, to pluck out i love that that statement just to to reach down and pluck it out okay great picture of the idea and concept of the rapture found in the scripture. And uh, this word is robust in its understanding. Now, as we put a little bit more spotlight on one particular point of the definitions we just looked at, I think it's interesting to note that harpazo is a derivative. It's derived from another Greek word. And that Greek word literally means to take for one's self. And you say, what's so big deal of that? Well, may I remind you what the rapture is? You and I see it from our perspective. But what is the rapture from Christ's perspective? It is the reality of Jesus Christ coming and getting his bride. Now, let me ask you, men, can I, can I just ask you to do something that may be a little hard for some of us, depending on our time of years? Can you remember back to your wedding day? One of my favorite statements as a pastor is when I'm standing up here and sometimes back here and there's a groom next to me and the father brings the bride and I get to say something like this, go and get your bride. And that man, that young man, boy, you should see the smile on his face, amen? So he jumps down these stairs and he goes and grabs his bride and brings her up and so forth. 
Can I just tell you that is exactly what the perspective is of the rapture from Jesus Christ. He is coming to what? To go take his bride for himself. There's a great symbolic aspect about what we do in the wedding and so forth. And there's a great picture of that truth. That in the rapture, you know what the time has finally come for? Jesus Christ to come and get his bride. To take her home. To bring her home with him. And it is a beautiful picture that even the Greek word describes for us as we read caught up there in First Thessalonians chapter 4. And then some other passages we'll look at in the future that deal with uh, the actual rapture here. He's coming to snatch us away. Put all that together. He's coming to snatch us away, to pluck us up. Yes, by force, to seize us out of here, to, to take us away. And I love those pictures of the captain and the, the army coming, or the guards coming and pulling Paul away. And Jesus Christ, fearing they take him by force and just coming and making him king. And that's a great picture of how the rapture will be. Now, I want to pause a second, okay? And I know, boy, I, I can get going, especially when I get excited about topics. So I'm trying not to talk too quick. But here's reality. I want to hit the pause button. I want to just say something real quick that I think is crucial as we get in to talk about eschatology, specifically even the rapture and so forth. I want to make this point um, uh, before we make a distinction about the timing uh, uh, and the particulars about what we believe about that timing of the rapture and things like that. Because that's where the separation of belief most often enters into the discussion of eschatology. is when we get into the, the timing and the things like that. But I want to encourage you about this truth, okay, as we delve into the topic. Most Christians who are serious students of the Word of God, they have an honest desire to know what God says about the end times in the rapture are typically born again. They love the Lord. They leave the Bible is the word of God and most desire to live a godly life in view of what lies ahead. I say that to say this because I think it's very important for us to understand when we start talking about these things that deal with the timing or the particular interpretation of some limited revelation, we have to be very careful in how we view even others that may differ somewhat on timing and things like that. Because here's an important point. Um, these things, can I not say, we wholeheartedly agree on. Our love for God. Our love for God's Word. Our desire to live godly in this present world as we understand the things that will happen in the future. These things are the, the big things, the, the things that we have in common. I would also say that almost every Christian who looks to God's Word as the blueprint for the things that are going to happen in the future most likely, almost often, agree on three things. There would be these three things. Number one, there's coming a time of great wrath and judgment as the world has never seen. It's known as the 70th week of Daniel, or in the more common terms, the tribulation. They would agree on that. Number two, at the conclusion of that time, Christ is coming back to earth to establish his kingdom here, the kingdom of Christ here on earth. Most would agree towards that end, that there will be a kingdom of Christ established here on earth. And then number three, as we're talking about in this uh, particular sermon, is there will be a rapture. What is the translation of immortality to immortality for believers? That they may not agree on the timing. Okay? We have these things uh, that we have in common that we would all agree in many ways. And, and uh, I say that to say this. This is not necessarily an, ease, an issue, listen to me carefully, of evil and good. 
when we talk about the timing of rapture, when we talk about some of the, the minutiae interpretation of the, the things of things, let's be careful. We are not talking about salvation. We are not talking about some of the major doctrines or even some of the, 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 the next level, however you want to describe them, doctrines. We're talking about some things that deal with the interpretation of some things that we all believe in. Okay? In reality, I, I'll just, you know, I, I have some friends that I've known down through the years that, uh, for instance, one that, know, that believes in a mid-trib uh, uh, rapture, excuse me, a mid-trib rapture. I have another friend who believes in a post-trib. We'll, we'll talk about these terms in a moment. A post-trib rapture. You know what I know about both those guys? These things that are true. They love the Lord. They love God's Word. Now, I believe they are wrong. They have erred in their interpretation of the timing of the rapture. But I'll tell you, you'll never find a person who believes in the rapture more than they do who desires to see God's plan play out as it is in Revelation and so forth and to be prepared for it and to warn people about it. In fact, the friend that is a post-tribber, as we like to call them, a post-tribber, they are passionate about warning people to be ready and so forth. So I just encourage you, we're not talking necessarily, or we are not talking about evil and good here. We are not talking about uh, false teaching and truth. We're not talking about salvation and damnation, the difference here whether we're talking about a matter of interpretation of some of the limited revelation that God gave us about the end times. But do not misunderstand me. I think it's crucial that you and I have the right interpretation of Scripture. Okay? So uh, we have to have this balance of love among the brethren and understand there's some people out there and, and even some good Bible-believing, God-loving people who may differ a little bit on the timing of the rapture, whatever the case may be, uh, and yet, they love the Lord. Uh, they want to, Him to get the glory. Again, we would differ with them. We believe that that is a, a, a wrong interpretation. I will also say this. It has been a joy and a delight to study this matter, uh, subject matter, in preparation for this sermon and, and uh, subsequent ones. And I like to be well prepared for preaching messages. And I'll tell you, my resolution and my belief in our interpretation of what the Bible says about the timing of the rapture is as strong as ever. What do we believe? So what is it, Pastor Henry, about the rapture with all that intro done? What is, the, what is it that we believe about the rapture and why do we believe uh, that about the timing of the rapture? Well, even in our statement of faith that's in our Constitution and such, here's what we state. We believe in a pre-tribulational, pre-millennial rapture. We believe in a pre-tribulational or pre-trib as it's often referred to and then we kind of shorten it, right? Pre-trib, pre-millennial um, rapture. We believe in that. What does such a statement mean? You say, well, Pastor Henry, there's some big words there. Why is it necessary for us to identify and clarify that this is what we believe? Um, why, um, uh, why is it important that we identify as such? Well, that first term, pre-tribulation, uh, is an important term. It means simply this. We believe the rapture of the body of Christ, the church, occurs before the tribulation, before the 70th week of Daniel begins when the Antichrist is revealed and uh, he is hailed as a great bringer of peace. I don't know about you, but yesterday and in things, when you heard about Israel being attacked, did you hear about that? Declaring war on Hamas. I don't know about you, but I'm thinking, ooh, that sure does set the table even better, doesn't it? Because what's the Antichrist going to do? He is going to be well known for coming on the scene and brokering peace in the Middle East and across the world in some ways. 
there in the tribulation. And so I'm thinking, wow, this just kind of sets the table, doesn't it? The more craziness there is and so forth, lack of peace, and kind of sets the table with that. So a pre-trib view says that the rapture of the body of Christ, that translation, will occur before the tribulation comes in. In comparison to that is the mid-tribulationism or the mid-trib view uh, of the rapture. What is that? It's the belief that the church will be raptured at the midpoint of the tribulation. After three and a half years of the 70th week of Daniel, as Daniel talks about those weeks in his prophetical book. In other words, they hold the position that the church will be in that first part. Endure all the things of the first part of the tribulation, the revelation of the Antichrist, the brokering of the peace, things like that we'll talk about later in our study. But they'll be caught up before the second part of the tribulation. As we get into the tribulation and talk about that, we understand that what happens in the second part is really the pouring out of the wrath of God. The judgment on mankind and on earth for the rejection of Christ and God and so forth. So the, the church will be raptured right in the middle. Um, many could view this or we could see this as often called a compromise between the two main positions of pre-tribulation and the third one, which is called post-tribulationism. Post-tribulationism. Post-tribulationism is a position that the church will endure the entirety of the tribulation. They will be translated only when Jesus Christ comes back to earth in the second coming. Okay, And so in that, obviously, the church returns immediately back to earth with him. And so we meet him in the air and we come back right, right away and so forth. And, and uh, that's what they would hold to. That's what they would believe and so forth. One of their own theologians would express the position this way. This is what he said. The church of Christ will not be removed from the earth until the advent of Christ at the very end of the present age. The rapture and the appearing take place at the same crisis or the same time, the same point. Hence, Christians of that generation will be exposed to the final affliction under the Antichrist. Okay, so we understand and we can grasp exactly what is being said here. That's in a post-trib's own word, post-trib, someone who holds that position. Okay, let's just step back a second. Let's understand. Hence the reason why we put within our statement of faith and why if you say, Pastor Henry, you believe in a rapture? I sure do. I believe in a pre-trib, pre-millennial rapture. Okay, why is that? Because I don't believe it's happened in the middle of the tribulation. I don't even believe it's happened at the end of the tribulation. I believe scripturally we will see that it's happened happening before the tribulation, before the 70th week of Daniel. And so it is important for you and I to clarify and stipulify this is what we believe. We believe it scripturally, we'll, we'll see here uh, in this study, right? So what about the next term, premillennial? Why is that important and why do we throw such a term as that in it? Well, the term premillennialism or premillennial is the belief that both the rapture and Christ's second coming will occur prior to the millennial kingdom of Christ which we believe, and this is important to the term, we believe to be a literal thousand-year reign of Christ here on earth. That as he returns to the second coming, he will establish such a thing. Why is that distinction so necessary? Some, you and I, in fact, maybe you're here tonight, you say, Pastor Henry, I never realized that there had to be such a distinction towards the rapture. I never understood why we had to use some terms to describe it. Well, it tells us about the timing. It, it tells us what, what we believe scripturally the timing of the rapture is. So why is this distinction necessary? Well, there are those who uh, hold to a contrast position. It's known as historical postmillennialism. 
post-millennialism. So you begin to pick up on all the terms, right? All the prefaces. The post-millennial obviously means it happens after the millennium, okay? So post-millennialism contends that Christ will return after the millennium. Now this is kind of interesting. In essence, making it a millennial kingdom ran by Christ without him being present. So that's why we said when we say premillennial, we say that also means and includes in its understanding and definition that Jesus Christ is going to come and establish and rule literally a thousand-year rule kingdom here on earth himself. That's why the term is so crucial there. You see, those who believe in postmillennialism believe that the work of Christ through his church... Yeah, will work, uh, will, or excuse me, his, the work of Christ will be through his church during the church age. And then that will usher in a thousand year period as described by them of spiritual dedication, international peace, godly prosperity, wherein Christ will spiritually bind Satan and reign on earth through the hearts of his people. So in their sense, in many ways, this would not hold to a literal kingdom, but it is a kingdom in the hearts of people. You get you that? You understand the, the difference of what uh, they believe and so forth. Then he will visibly return to earth at the end of the millennium. Okay? So that's post-millennialism. It's a, it, it is a, they, they hold to a thousand-year reign, but it's not literal in the sense of Jesus Christ being here on earth. It is not something that he's going to come here and reign. Okay? So that's what they hold to in post-millennialism. Let's just muddy the waters even more. There's another term. It's called all millennialism, okay? And from our study before, music and so forth, it's not millennial, right? So there's no millennial rule. Here's what they would believe. And to kind of cut to the chase, let me quote them, okay? And there's some key words. You'll see them here highlighted that, that really help us. All millennialism contends that the millennium is a figurative amount of time that coincides at the same time as the church age, okay, that we're in now, okay? In their view, the millennium began when Christ, or with Christ, completed work of redemption and his subsequent ascension. In a spiritual sense, Satan is being bound and Christ's reign over the nations is being established with every heart that is changed through the preaching of the gospel, okay? We'll speak in a second. That word figurative is huge. The word spiritual is huge, too, okay? So then, uh, this quote continues, at the end of this church age, this millennial age, there'll be a time of tribulation that may or, not be, may or may not be a literal seven years, after which Christ will return visibly. He will rapture his church. He will defeat Satan in the final battle. The final judgment will take place, and the new heaven and new earth will be established for all eternity. In our understanding of the timeline of Revelation, did you see what happens? It cuts out the entire thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ here on earth, okay? It just removes it. It says it coincides with the church age. It happens at the same time. It happens, you know, that Christ is kind of, or excuse me, Satan is kind of bound because people are changing and, and coming to know Christ and so forth. That's all millennialism, okay? Two key statements to make that really will help us end up where we want to be in our understanding of where we're looking at it. Two key statements in that summation I'd like to note. The first is this, this position interprets much of the prophetic literature as figurative, not literal. That is a crucial, important point. That is a point in which you and I will say, wait a second, something's wrong with that. <laughs> You're not taking scriptures for what they say. 
you're, you're reading things into them. You're saying, well, that's just a picture. That's just a figure of this, right? And that's what they will often do. When God in the Old Testament prophecies, now we've got to go back and look at all those. When they talk about a kingdom coming, a kingdom in which Jesus Christ will sit on the throne, that's just figurative. It's the throne of somebody's heart. It's the picture of what he'll do in the hearts of people, not literally that Christ will sit on the throne. Can I tell you right now, I wholeheartedly believe that there will be a throne that Jesus Christ sits on on this earth. And he will do so for a thousand years. And we will see the scriptures from that, that, that establish that as we move along in our study. But understand that's what they're saying. Number two, and this is kind of huge, the fulfillment of prophecies is most often realized spiritually, not physically. So they'll look at many of the Old Testament prophecies and even New Testament prophecies, and they'll say, in their understanding, the all-millennialists, um, these are fulfilled spiritually, not physically. They happen n- not in actuality, but in the hearts of people, whatever the case may be. We could go into a whole lot more. This tends to lead to replacement theology, the church replaced Israel, and everything else. It gets into a whole slew of things. The spiritualization of those prophecies and those promises of the uh, prophecies of the old promises of the Old Testament. Okay, so I don't want to get too much into that, but understand that that's exactly where this plays into and <laughs> where it falls into in our understanding. These all millennials went then. Okay, that exposes then one of the major reasons why. These different views are in existence. You say, Pastor Henry, okay, I appreciate everything you just said. I may not have caught much of it, but I appreciate much of what you just said. And us discussing premillennialism, postmillennial, mid-trib, post-trib, I appreciate you doing that. But why do we have all of these views? Well, I would submit to you that it comes down to one singular thing, primarily, certainly, Satan wants to muddy the waters. But here's where it really comes down to. Letter number C is this. We believe in a literal interpretation of God's Word. That is crucial. As I said before, I want to be very careful when we discuss these things. And I, I know good, good people <laughs> differ on these things. But I also know this. I think it is crucial, and I think it's very important for you and I to take God's Word for what it says. Take God's Word for what it says. And so we want to look at God's word through the lens of what it says. We want to take the literal translation. There are times in God's word when it is speaking figuratively, but can I tell you, God knew I wasn't the sharpest knife in the book. You know what he does? He tells me when it's figurative. He makes it obvious. In context or by saying, hey, here's a parable, here's a picture, here's this, he lets us know. It makes it pretty clear and obvious whether by context or by the clear uh, uh, spelling it out for me to understand, for you to understand, this is figurative. This is a picture of what that is like. Okay, Those words like and so forth do a great job of that. So why is the literal interpretation of scriptures important? when we are talking about eschatology and particularly the rapture, okay? Dwight D. Pentecost, he made this statement. I think it's a great statement. He said this, It is frankly and freely admitted by all millennialists that the basic issue in the controversy between premillennialists and themselves is the issue of the method of interpretation to be employed in interpretation of biblical prophecy. 
So what he's saying is, listen, they, the amillennials understand that what makes them different, why they would believe such a thing, the figurative and the, the spiritual fulfillment of the prophecies, is their difference in the method of interpretation. In fact, he goes on to, to quote one. I'm not familiar with who this is, but uh, he is a proponent that has written books about the amillennials view. Alice, Oswald T. Alice, uh, he says this, and he quotes him, Dwight P. D. Pentecost quotes him. The question of literal versus figurative interpretation is, therefore, one which has to be faced at the very outset. Pentecost goes on to say, he admits that if the literal method of interpretation of the Scriptures be the right method, premillennialism is the correct interpretation. Now, I love that because here's what it's saying. Even those who hold to an all-millennials view, who hold that there won't be a thousand-year reign and all those kind of things, they even say, well, if you're going to hold to a literal interpretation of the Bible, you have to believe in a premillennial return of Jesus Christ. And can I tell you? I believe in the premillennial return of Jesus Christ. Because I take the Bible what? Literally. We take it literally. Now, think about it, too. Let's follow that line of logic if we can here. If the opponents of the premillennial position, uh, as we hold to admit that if you take the Scriptures literally, not figuratively, when looking at eschatology, you must end at the premillennial position of Christ's second coming, and then to be consistent, you would also have to end at the pre-tribulational rapture position of the church. I like how one theologian stated it. He said simply this, It can easily be seen that the literal method of interpretation demands a pre-tribulation rapture of the church. In other words, there's no way around it. If you, if you interpret God's word literally, you can't help but end up at the reality that there's a pre-tribulation rapture of the church. When consistently employing a literal method of interpretation and looking at the scriptures, one can arrive at no other conclusion that the church will be raptured before the tribulation. Hence, our belief, as stated in our statement of faith, is totally and completely consistent with our declared method of interpreting scriptures. What is that? A literal method of believing what the Bible says is what the Bible means. That's the literal interpretation of scripture. And so we hold to that. And as we hold to the literal interpretation of the Scriptures, we take the Bible for what it says to mean what it says. Therefore, we arrive at a pre-tribulation, pre-millennial rapture of the saints. And I don't know about you, I sure look forward to it. Now listen, in the days ahead, here's why I know what we have not done. There's a lot to cover here. I wanted to kind of set the table, give some foundational, some understanding within Christendom, some of the different views and so forth. Now as we get together in our next study, we will look specifically at all the proof passages for the rapture. We'll talk about how they show and prove that there is such a thing as the rapture as that word rapturo harpazo presents to you and I that one day is coming when you and I will see Jesus Christ in the air. And as his bride, he'll take us home with him forever. And oh, what a day that will be.